Hello, Little GI listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to tell you how excited I am that a lot of you are already on your way for the conference today. The conference starts today, our Young Adult Liturgy Conference. I'm so excited. And if you could not make it this weekend, we already have the date for next conference. It's July 12th, 13th, and 14th in 2019. This is more than an, a year in advance, so you do not have an excuse to miss it next year. Also, I want to thank all of you who have been ordering products at Catholic Balm Co. with our code. Uh, if you uh, haven't done so yet and you want to buy some lip balm or, or beard oil, you can go to catholicbalm.co slash liturgy. It definitely helps us out when you order products using our code. And finally, this week's episode is a real amazing episode. This is uh, another one of those episodes where we go through five different categories of things and you find out who you are. So it's uh, basically you get to find out what your liturgical agenda is. And it's just really fantastic. This comes from Monsignor Mannion. And really, we talk about kind of at the end, the core of what the Liturgical Institute is and, and what we're trying to do and what our quote unquote agenda is. So without further ado, episode 41 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Bum, bum, bum. Five agendas of the post-liturgical movement liturgy by Francis Mannion. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Cat in I here? don't know what that was. Who would ever have thought the day would come when we were talking about the post-conciliar agendas of the Catholicity of the Liturgy by Francis Mannion to the Donkey Kong theme song? Plus, that was that, about that, what that was. Yes, I don't know. You don't know the Donkey Kong theme song? I'm, I guess I'm too young for that. You are <laughs> not. Shut up, you millennials. What was that on Atari or something? Yeah, I, Atari. I don't know. Atari. I remember the, the old Atari, Atari 2600. What Atari? What's it called? Atari. Atari. Didn't they just make a Saint Atari? Atari Tekawitha? Yeah, Atari. So not, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know what Atari is. Oh. And I know it's Katari Tekawitha. Kateri. Kateri. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, I even was wrong in my correction mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to edit that out. Yeah, well, she's in heaven. She doesn't mind. Yeah. But you know what? Heaven. Where we are not heaven. right now is heaven. However. You got that right. We've talked about Monsignor Francis Mannion many He's times. a good guy. M. Francis Mannion, for Michael Francis Mannion, founding director of the Liturgical Institute, Woo-hoo! brought in by Cardinal George from people all around the world to start the Liturgical Institute. And you know why? Because he's awesome. Well, he, yeah, he was very good. He also had his finger on the pulse of things, and he knew what was going on there. When, you know, whenever, read, whenever you read a Mannion article... A Mannion script? Especially some of his best manuscripts... He reads an immense amount of stuff. It's like a drag net in the ocean, and you don't know what you're going to get. You know, you get every sample of fish out there, and then he 
categorizes them into we've got you know sardines and dolphin and tuna and squid. Yeah, we did a we did a podcast on Avery Dulles recently, mm-hmm. and Dulles was one of uh, Monsignor Mannion's uh, teachers and mentors. And Dulles, the same type of thing. You see the same methodology between mm-hmm. Dulles and Mannion about organizing and systematizing. Very disciplined. Very disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of just running off at the mouth, I am the opposite of that. Yep. But he. Uh, you know, very much influenced by the liturgical movement, Monsignor Mannion. And so the question was, after the council, what happened to the liturgical movement? We've been talking about liturgical movement a lot. Can I say liturgical movement again? Maybe One say more liturgical time. movement again. <laughs> and, you know, this was the, all the ideas and the thinkers of, about liturgical reform that eventually becomes codified into Vatican II. And if you read the classical liturgical movement authors, they're completely in harmony with Sacrosanum Concilium and the Second Vatican Council. And then something seems to happen after the council, like it all explodes and... Um, you know, what happened? People were asking this question. What happened to the liturgical movement? Where did it go? Why did it become sort of a lot of liturgical abuse in the suburban you, parishes of the 70s and 80s? Do you remember reading that uh, Newhouse article? It was actually yes. called... What, what ha- ever happened to the liturgical yeah, movement? And he cites uh, St. Louis's uh, Monsignor Hellregel. Mm-hmm. It was, and he quotes him in there saying, this is not, not what, what we had in mind at all. Not this is not what we meant. Yes. So, so what I can, in fact, Richard John Newhouse, you know, is the founder of First Things magazine that's still out there. And uh, when I was a new person at the Liturgical Institute, we had to go to St. John's Abbey in Collegeville for an architecture thing. And I was staying in one of the dorms. It was like midnight. And I hear this at the door. And who's at the door but Richard John Newhouse and Monsignor Mannion. And they both have cigars. And they just come in the, in the room. And I, I don't know where they'd been, but I guess they've been having a good time. They're like, hey, we're here to smoke cigars. I'm in this room the size of a shoebox, right? And this dorm. And they light up these <laughs> cigars and have a good time and talk Is about it in the same room that you live right now no this was on the different campus in uh, college oh, from in minnesota college, and i was staying right. in one of the dorms there as, instead of a hotel you were a presenter at a conference i, I was a presenter that was my first uh, public right, talk they on got the cigars they want to smoke them in your room and then they said and they filled the room with cigar smoke and then they went off somewhere else i was like well there you go thanks <laughs> oh, a lot richard john newhouse i would be really <laughs> mad about that wow. stink up my room and then off to something else Anyway, but that, you know, they were, they like to enjoy life and also think high thoughts. So they're very similar that way. So Monsignor Mannion asked the question, well, where are we now? This is like in 1998, he published this I'd like to know that right now. And well, that's the question. Are we in different places now? And is there another grouping? And, you know, if anybody's listening to this podcast, if anybody's listening to this podcast. (laughs) Most certainly nobody is, but go ahead. The question you could ask yourself is, which of these are you in? And if you're a young priest or if you're about to become ordained as a priest, you're going to be in one of these groups and you're probably going to go to a parish that's in a different group. And so which liturgical agenda, he calls them agendas. Um, it's not quite the way we think of agenda, but it's basically which liturgical self-understanding do you have? Is this another one of those things where I got to find out who I am and yes, and, and how is, I need to fix myself? This is a journey into the deepest oh, part man. of your soul. I love these. And mind, I really want to know which it's category. It's not that long I mean. of a podcast. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> number... One, 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 one. This one he calls the official agenda. And he, he says these are all different ways of approaching the liturgy that are operative or operating at that time. What do you know about the official agenda, Chris? It is official. So it's... Uh, <laughs> official, <laughs> official, yeah, official. Yeah. It's, uh, no, so it's um, kind of the expression of the bishops and bishops' conferences and maybe the Holy See. They're the people who were... Um, really responsible and uh, given the authority to implement and maybe to, uh, to retranslate or rework the, the rights and then to carry it on. And so it really had that, 
official character about it. Right. It was so legitimized the, by actual ecclesial authority. Right. So Vatican II says all the rights should be revised, and then they give it off to a group called the Concilium in Rome, and their job is to revise all the rights, do the new missile and all that stuff, and then they put the missile out, and they give it directions, and then they give you know, clarifications and instructions on what it should be. Now, some people were, okay, the church says it, let's do it. Other people are like, you know, that... I don't really like what they did, right? So that's a step away from the official. So they'd be agenda. a different agenda. Well, yes, you know, some people look at the at the missile as they got it after Vatican II, and like Richard John Newhouse, this was not what we had in mind. <laughs> they said, but you know, some people would say, well, whether I have it in mind or not, this is what the church has given us. And so there were people out there saying, well, you just do what the church does, right? And so um, the concilium was associated with... By the with, way, that sounds like a pretty good way to go, right? There is a certain safety to that, but you don't want to be mindless about it, right? And say, well, now it's frozen forever. Ah, you ruined it. I, I like know, that one. I know, but, but it's, a, it's a safe path, right? This is what the church gives us. I like it. But there were people arguing that, you know, just because some council of people in Rome came up with this thing doesn't mean it came down from heaven by angels. Yeah, they're right? all the way in Rome. I'm in America. Right. We exactly. do things like we do in America. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, what, so some what, people would have said, well, you know, they, for instance, here's, you could have critiqued it and say, well, what happened to the feast day of St. John the Baptist, Chris, in the new calendar? It moved. It, it uh, moved. Well, and did it? Well, doesn't, right, you know where it used to be, right? The equinox. Right. The longest day of the year. Come on, Chris. Well, do you listen to this it? podcast? It's still on uh, June 24th. Is it still there? Yeah. Okay. Well, wh- whatever. Suppose they... You but, know, they were, but you're right. There were a number of other things. Uh, what about Rogation Days or Ember Days right. and other things feasts? People and, were attached to. And Sunday and Octaves. And All right. Now that's like too that. much. And the things that became optional sort of disappeared. And so you could ask the question, well, should it have been optional? Should it be mandatory? So that's a way to critique the official reform. So anyway, just to take it as it is, you know, the Concilium published a journal called Concilium and the... One guy who was on that in the early days was named Ratzinger. Ratzinger, and another yeah, one was named right. Hansers von Balthasar, right? And then they were be kind of became un, uh, unhappy with the movement, and they started another journal called Communio, right. right? And they so, were unhappy with Concilium because it seemed like it was just a process of ongoing reform, and right? Reform. And change, change. Kind of, change they would change, have thought change. as a Ranarian worldview, an anthropocentric mm. worldview. Carl Rahner and, and followers, whether Rahner said that or not, that was, you know, people often say that's the perception. So they wanted to go off to this more sacramentally rich, beauty-based, objective uh, understanding of things. Well, see, and that's just, that's the, the sign, t- the sign is that, uh, what, at least according to Monsignor Mannion, one of the critiques of the, the official review is it became, um, or, or agenda, as he would put it, became very verbose, very cognitive, very heady, very intellectual very high on those elements but kind of anemic on the on the sacramental and the signs started to be you know thrown out reduced suppressed right and so the texts of the council talk about this relationship between uh tradition and progress right that they're supposed to be balanced out but that when you read the the council text they say sound tradition being retained but nonetheless progress is available so the council's full of all these you know, both ends, unity and diversity to preserve the unity of the Roman right and keep the uh, diversity, but uh, not simplicity and complexity. But what people started to say was, it seems like the simplicity is winning out on the complexity and the unity is winning out on the diversity and the tradition is losing to progress. And so although it was the official reform, there were people who thought, well, you know, maybe it's not perfect. And so some people went off, off, off the pier, right? It took a long walk <laughs> off a short pier. And fell into group two, Minions group two. Yeah. Wait, long well, walk you, off you, a short you, pier? Yeah. That's funny. I like that. Have you never heard that before? No. Oh, you millennials. 
Well, we're from landlocked states, you know, so that's why we don't get the joke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you can walk off either on the left or the right, mm -hmm. uh, forward or back, uh, progressive or traditional. But yes, his second group uh, he calls uh, traditionalism and uh, restoration, restoring things that were... Uh, uh, Restoring the preconciliar. Right. And this is different from saying, hey, we've forgotten a few things. Let's bring them back into the right. These are people who... They just want to do a hard about face. Right. So Vatican II was a mistake. Maybe it was in a fault count, fault, failed council. Maybe the Pope was illegitimate. You know, you see the crazy conspiracies out there. Now, not everybody's at that far of the conspiracy theory, but, you know, there were people like Evelyn Waugh and some others who thought that, wow, the preconciliar liturgy had such a beauty and that they gave it all up and that it was kind of... A mistake, right? But that doesn't illegitimize the the new, you know, post-Vatican II liturgy. Well, no. the, for, for this group, for some in this group, it okay. would have. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. And there are people out there who basically say... That it's not a valid... Either it's not valid or it was fundamentally a mistake, right? Oh, it could wow. be valid, like the church did it, but it wasn't a good idea in the end. Uh, not that the council was wrong, but the implementation was wrong. You know, that a, a Vatican council of bureaucrats is not guided to infallibility by the Holy Spirit. And maybe we just have to go back to where they started and, and st That's start That's a slippery over. slope, though, in my opinion, where like, well, how, then how that makes, Where do you stop? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. You know, like that, then, then you can start to question a lot of other things. Well, right. And so, um, you know, there, it, we're in a different place now since the Mormon Pontificum came out and, and Pope Benedict said, you know, this is the extraordinary form and two forms of the right operating in the church at the same time. What he's talking about was back then people who were basically denying the validity of the council or saw that there were a lot of uh, mistakes. Yeah, but he, what some more Pontificum does is um, accept a lot of the strengths of this position. So what, what Monsignor Manning is good at is he'll, he'll give you know, what I think is a pretty objective uh, uh, um description of the agenda and then i'll say this so some of the reasons do have value oh absolutely okay. so some of the reasons that they give is it has um has a great respect for the tradition of the church uh for the discipline the the liturgical discipline and rubrics of the church has uh, a, a great sort of transcendent character about it i mean these are good things right? yeah i agree <laughs> those are good things and so sumorum pontificum will uh you know, we'll use a lot of these. And even, you know, I think how we think about it today, we accept all of those things, the church's tradition, the transcendental character uh, of the liturgy, respect for... And I don't think Rupert's those are laws. mutually excuse, exclusive. I don't think no, you have correct. to do either or. Right. And we have enough time now that we kind of say, okay, we don't have to do either or, we can do this and that. But in the, some of the immediate post-conciliar years, um, he was saying there, he called it a non-scholarly conservatism. Because you can have a scholarly conservatism, right? Which is an, a really serious analysis of this liturgy versus that. And you can make a claim for one or the other. But the crossed arms, everything in Vatican II was from the devil, and I'm not doing that, is, can be a kind of non-scholarly conservatism. You could also have a non-scholarly liberalism as sure. well. You can have a non-scholarly approach to everything. Well, it reminds Pretty me of much talk everything that, I do is non-scholarly, <laughs> so I know what that's like. That you give this uh, talk from time to time, Dennis, called Good Traditional, Bad Traditional. About architecture, yeah. Yeah, and so, which, uh, if I remember right, I mean, you, you, you can... You can desire traditional architecture because of the inherent goodness and uh, ontological expression that it has, or just because it's old. And right. that's not necessarily an informed, uh, the latter isn't necessarily informed. Right. You can have so. really junky sacred art from 1890, and you can have really sunky, what did I say? Sunky. You, sunky. Said, <laughs> junky. you definitely said sunky. <laughs> junky sacred art from 1975 as well. So junky is junky no matter what decade it comes from. And sunky is and not sunky even is, a word. is now a word. I would like that word to catch on, please. <laughs> Okay, so number three, 
This is uh, a little more nuanced one. It's called the reform of the reform or reforming. The I've reform. heard that before. I'm yes. not entirely sure what it means. Well, a reform, remember, compared to a movement. So a movement is when a bunch of people get together and have conferences and talk about things. A reform is when the church comes in and makes changes to the official liturgical books. So these folks would not have been the Vatican II was from the devil school. They would be, well, the Vatican II did some things and they seemed right at the time, but now that 30 years, 40 years have gone by, maybe we need to tweak it a little bit and maybe actually change the liturgical books. To so put, it's not like an about face, it's like a left face. But somewhere right between face. those first yeah. two categories. Not the all the way. Reform yeah. and the, right. the And restoring. so the key thing is that they, they, they think that the authentic interpretation of Vatican II says certain things and that somehow the, they got off the rails a little bit in the implementation. And if you actually go back to what Sacrosanct and Concilium says, you'd be closer to the original um, intention. And so that's that very sounds, loyal to the church. That very, sounds like, uh, it sounds about like where I am at right now, but I haven't heard the other one, so. Well, we'll see. Monsignor Manion gives five, and number five is the one that he proposes as the oh, best. dang it. Yeah, so you'll see. So you might guess that was end. kind of a founding one for the liturgical yeah, instance. You're out, soon. Jesse. Come yeah, on. I'm out of the game already. Well, right, and there are some people arguing that, you know, the reform was necessary, but, uh-oh, are the, are the liturgical <laughs> they're, they're police coming are coming, yeah. <laughs> coming to get us. That was the liturgical police for sure. <laughs> um, that, you know, some, there were reasons for some of these things, but that maybe they went a little too far or maybe they didn't interpret the document of, uh, documents of Vatican II properly. This is where we get into this question of the hermeneutic. What's the interpretive key? What does tradition, what does it mean to retain sound tradition? What does it mean to make legitimate progress only when it's necessary? And someone in this part could say, well, maybe they did a little too much progress and didn't retain enough sound tradition. And so let's go back and look at this again under the actual norms of, of the council. So this question, whenever you see authentic renewal or the authentic achievements of Vatican II, usually that's kind of code language for some reform of the reform thinking. And one of the leaders of that was who? Ratzinger. Ma. Yes. Colonel Ratzinger was very much in the That's reform pretty much going to be my school. guess for everything going forward ever. <laughs> well, remember, which, which document was it where he proposed possibly moving the sign of peace? Was that Sacramentum Caritatis? Or? No, I think that was... Yeah, no, I don't remember. But he, did, he talked yeah. about, you know, the sign of peace seemed to be interruptive right before um, receiving communion and that he was going to put together a group to study, maybe moving it somewhere earlier in the Mass. I actually kind of agree with that. But see, if you then then you want to reform the reform, right? The, the reformed missile, put it someplace, and somebody says, "Well, we tried it. It has some good things, but maybe we'd be better somewhere else." That would be an actual dis- decision. To Wait, was there a kiss of peace before Vatican II? I don't. It wasn't the way it is now, like out to the people. So, like the priest just got the peace and then gave it to everybody. Like that. Was well, it. At, that, it, at some point before the council, that happened. Whether that was happening in 1961, I okay. don't think. But normally, it was just the ministers of the altar, right? They would give the kiss of peace to the celebrating priest. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think it didn't, wasn't out among the the people. But what are some strengths and weaknesses of this position? Then? Well, the strengths are it wants to be close to the council documents. And that Jesse likes it so far? Right. That's a strength? <laughs> yeah, the strengths are... The strength or a strike. It, it isn't frozen, right? There's a certain mental flexibility here that, hey, we tried it. 50 years is a good test run. Now we're, maybe we can tweak it and make it a little bit uh, mm-hmm. better. Yeah, it, it's, it has one eye on uh, tradition. It has another eye open to legitimate progress. It has an association with, uh, it, it, it wants to have some official uh, standing. It's not just, you know, going off and trying this. And so it wants to be under the, the, the umbrella of, of an official reform of the magisterium. Too. Mm-hmm. But, but what's so, wrong about it? What? 
Well, it can become the home for crankiness, I think. Right? Yeah, it, well, it can be, but I'm just cranky people in all the all the camps. I'm never cranky. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think probably what my if I remember what Monsignor uh, Mannion says is, you know, there, there's always kind of an unease with the official what, with what's handed down. There, there's a, kind of a constant desire to to change it, uh, perhaps move it that way, uh, just to uh, rather than a. a, a, a a necessary docility to receiving the books that that might not be there. It's there's a reason it's still talked about today because uh, it is a, a a not unreasonable position. Well, at the same time, where does it stop? You know, where? Well, that's, how so, do that's you know, just it. You how can do you hear know the end? over the last year. You can hear both Cardinal Seurat and Pope Francis speaking about what is the position of the reform of the reform? What is its uh, place in the church? And now? Pope Francis says there's no reform of the reform. That's right. He's mm-hmm. definitely sort of says that's not his agenda and then Cardinal Seurat see and even Cardinal Seurat it seems um, after uh, after the Pope said that he talks about uh, an interpretation of the council with a proper hermeneutic mm-hmm. and so the, the language has changed a little bit too so anyway but, it's but still in the air that could easily be the end is your preference you know like I prefer it to go a little further this way or a little less that way and that would be the end is the, of the reform and the form yeah. so like what I think could be very yeah. subjective. Right. But the, one of the strengths of this is that there's it's more like a movement than a reform because it says, hey, there's all these ideas floating around. We've tried this, and wouldn't it be great if we also did X, Y, and Z? So some of the things they asked for were priests and people facing the same direction, ad orientem liturgy, the revival of Gregorian chant, um, the use of the first Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon, kind of exclusively, things like that, that um, but only when the church allows it, right? So they're not going off on their own doing what they want. Yeah, and you want to argue with those things? Well, no, I, they're I, all good. I, I think they're all pretty good. But you could also say, well, what about the Eucharistic no. prayers that have come up for yeah. various occasions and needs and so on? So, you know, are they magically right? No. But what's good about it is they want to work within the church. There's theological ideas that are basically loyal to the tradition, and they're asking maybe someday the church will reform the books to do these things again. Number four. Four, 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 four. 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 This is what he calls worship culture and creativity, right? So, you know, one of the things that Vatican II opened up was the idea that enculturation was possible because the church is going all over the world now, not just in Europe. So the traditions in Africa will be very different from China, which would be very different from Rome. And so there, this development of the theology of authentic cultural expression comes in, and it's pretty darn important that enculturation is uh, necessary, even if it's not Western. And so it took a few decades really to figure out what that theology looked like. And finally, Veritatis Legitime uh, came out, I think, in 1999, which is the official church document. Legitimate truth. Legitimate variety. Var- Dang it. <laughs> not Veritas, but Varietate. Variety. Gosh. Um, so the idea, you know, among this agenda, as you know, Father Monsignor Mannion describes it, is that um, the goal becomes creativity. The goal becomes enculturation rather than the method through which the same uh, reality is is known. If you're trying to balance uh, uh, the unity of the Roman rite with legitimate variations according to cultures and peoples, this one is emphasizing the legitimate variations to cultures and peoples. I'm okay uh, with that, to a degree. To a degree, yeah. Uh, but where is the degree? Or what's yeah. the what's the that's line? A good, that's a good question. I, how I, how I much diversity s- is uh, I, legitimate? I, I would say as long as there's a vast majority of unity across the spectrum. I mean, well, this is Jesse Wilder. I'm not a pope or right, anything. Right. But say you go to a, a 
a tribe in Africa that's never been Christian before, and they have a, a wonderful musical tradition. You could say, all right, let's use your musical tradition. Now, do, now think about this. You go to the angry political caucus meeting of whatever politic, political stance it is, and you say, let's dialogue with that. Let's enculturate with that. So he mentions how the dialogue between feminist spirituality and theology had come up at the time, and that's just another thing. That's but just a culture that degree, to enculturate with. If you're going to be enculturating you know, that culture's music, then you need to take the most you know, honorable or most joyful parts of their music, the ones that would you know, kind of equate to right. glory and joy right. and the most, you know, highly elevated and regarded, not just anything that's a part of the right. culture. But you know what you're saying is take the things that are most authentically liturgical from their culture. Right. Oh. So now suppose you step out of that and say, well, the culture now is interested in X, Y, and Z, eco stuff, whatever it is. Let's have an enculturation with that. Jesse. Question for you. All right. So, in uh, Pope Francis's recent letter on uh, holiness, it's called uh, Gaudete et Exultate or something like that, mm -hmm. he talks about the culture of zapping. Do you know what the culture of zapping is? Zip. Have you seen this? No. Come on, Jesse. Okay. What he means by culture of zapping is the desire in the culture for constant distraction and variety. And he goes on to say, now you can navigate two or three different. Uh, devices and I'm sorry. screens. Sorry, I was texting yeah, my wife. Yeah, no, pay attention. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> okay. This is what he means by the culture of zapping, this culture that desires distraction and is able to juggle. Dennis, pay attention. Yeah, oh, my, you actually are on. looking yeah, at your okay. phone. Yeah, okay. Keep going. I'm okay. listening. I was so just joking how, about that. So the question is, how does, like Dennis is saying, back, back, over here, Dennis. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, how, does, how do you enculturate into that? It, it, can, can it be done? So this is just another example of thousands. <laughs> Did you see Babylon B or or Eye of the Tiber had something that was like they developed an emoji mass, and then you just you're just texted the. the well, there you go. Yeah. Is that why is why is that funny and not a legitimate option? Because it's not because it's, it's foreign to the nature of the literature. It is right? so ridiculous. All right. Well, that's so, the, that's the that's the fourth one. It has, this, right. this this real desire. Is so what he says is the, the the impulses in this liturgical group are toward experimentation and adaptation, toward uh, small group dynamics and the rise of subjective responses, and uh, becomes informal and personalized, and uh, values place on stylistic creativity and variety. Now, we don't have that quite as much as we used to, but that used to be the liturgical goal. The liturgy committee would get together and say, how can we create something new this week? And uh, that has since passed a so bit, far, but it's still I'm around. still sticking with my number three, but yeah. let's see what right. number Try five on number five. Number five is something that Monsignor Mannion, I think, kind of invented and proposed, which is re-Catholicizing the reform. Oh, re okay. Re-Catholicizing You had reform. me at re-Catholicizing. <laughs> you so, lost me at reform. <laughs> he says he believes the ongoing liturgical reform will be most adequately advanced by this agenda that he's uh, reforming. So basically, you use the books you have. Right? You're not asking to change the books, although that might happen. The reformer, the reform people might do that. You don't take the fundamental proposal that you have to recreate it every time. You work with the authentic authority of the church as it's been given. And then you bring back this particular things that are um, often fallen away in the culture. He talks about that the liturgy stands in a cosmic setting so that you worship with the angels and the saints. There's a high interest in beauty. So architectural beauty, musical beauty, vestments, podcast, things beauty. like that. He calls it a high Trinitarian consciousness. So that would be the liturgical movement's notion that this is the worship of the Trinity and that the Christ is the primary uh, liturgist and that you're part of that mystical body. Uh, what else does he say? It uh, reaches to the very depths, depths of the human soul. 
the profound spiritual heritage of historic Christianity, and its vision is centered on the glory of God and the coming of the kingdom. So there's an eschatological consciousness, the second coming, the glory of God, the doxological, as, as we've called it before. I like this. This is great. And he has a couple of lists here. Uh, he says, it's not really found in geographic extensiveness. So it's not so much we're re-Catholicized by going across the whole world as much as spiritual depth, sacramental richness, religious exuberance and creativity of ecclesial institutions which is very interesting so this is kind of like that this is kind of like that um our uh on our coat of arms the the uh what's it called the the phrase oh my gosh Restore all things in christ to restore all things in christ yeah what's they called the command or the the motto the motto uh, yeah oh i thought there was another way of saying that but yeah instaurare et omnia christo Right? Instrum, instrare, instrare omnia, omnia in, in Christus, oh, to refound Christ. all things. To restore all things in, yeah, restore, in Christ. Restore and refound. But if he got this list from uh, our friend Avery Dulles, right? So if you think about these, it, it uh, has these characteristics. Spiritual depth. So instead of just a shallow kind of feel-good stuff, how can we reach to the depths of the sacramental meaning of things? Chris's favorite word. Hey, Mr. Gaji. Mr. Gaji, right? To, li- from, to go to the inner things from the outer things. Um, the sacramental richness instead of just saying okay here's the meal with friends here's the fulfillment of the temple of Solomon here's the fulfillment of you know Melchizedek here's the anticipation of the heavenly Jerusalem well and very rich signs right whether those are incense or music or vestments or architecture the sign value of the liturgy that he's talking about is beautiful and radiant and rich and deep Right. And what comes with that, he calls a religious exuberance. So instead of just a kind of pragmatic minimalism, like, oh, yeah, let's just sing the minimum and do the minimum and say the right words of institution, and then we know the Eucharist is confected and go home. The whole celebration is filled with color, light, beauty, art, and uh, the great tradition. And so it's actually delightful and exuberant. So it's an energetic thing. It's not a stodgy, cross-armed, cranky conservatism. And then the last one, creativity of ecclesial institutions. That might be you know, not what you think of with traditional liturgy, but think of like the Sisters for Life, right? They never existed before. That's an ecclesial institution that comes out of a creative response to a need. Um, any kind of new media is one of this those. This podcast. Right. Adam Bartlett showing up and saying, I'm going to make the Lumen Christi gradual because we need it and nobody's done it before. It's a, there's a creativity and an exuberance, a sacramental richness, and a spiritual depth. And if you have all of that, well, then really, why do you need to reform the book, right? Just use the book you have with the instructions the church gives and surround it with all this beautiful doxological richness and depth. And then that for the moment, that's all you need. And if the church decides to reform yeah. the book later, great. You've already been swimming around in sacramental richness anyway. I've always thought that too. On that point, you know, as we think we should move the books, you know, more uh, left or right or progressive or traditional or whatever. Meanwhile, nobody's actually using the books uh, according to the proper hermeneutic yeah, we're according too, to these too busy trying to change things yeah, I mean, to- where can you go to see uh, the liturgy and experience the liturgy with its uh, exuberance and its spirituality and its depth and rich sacramental size and appreciation of the word and cosmological worship and Trinitarian worship. I mean, after you can go and witness that, then you can start to make a valid sort of, all right, we need to move, uh, we need to change it this way or that way. But meanwhile, I mean, I think we should try that first. Right, exactly. And it doesn't, you don't become a cranky, oh, they ruined everything, we have to, Vatican II was wrong. It doesn't become uh, something like, well, we have to change everything or else we can't worship properly. It's, hey, this is what we have, let's make the best of it in the light of the entire uh, tradition. So, 
He says it renews the spiritual, mystical, and devotional dimensions of the revised rites. Recovery of the sacred, and uh, it's a corrective to what he calls the sterility and rationalism of much of modern liturgical experience. I think it's a good way to go. Let's try it. Let's do it. We can't rewrite the books, but we can celebrate them beautifully. And we can answer liturgy questions. But before we do that, this is the formative method of the Liturgical Institute, right? This is how we do things in the Liturgical Institute. Absolutely. Celebrate beautifully with the books the church gives us. I agree. Good job. Good job, Dennis. Good job, Chris. Good job, Monsignor Banyan. Yeah. You should do just do a cough. Just do a Chris I really cough. Have to cough. I'm waiting for you to turn this See, off. He so won't I can do cough. that. That's how he does it. Okay, it's it stopped. I don't believe you. <laughs> So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, guys, we got a question from Ben. Dennis. Ben. Dennis. Where you been, Ben? Ooh. Ooh. All right, go ahead. We'll we'll, we'll return to that later. Mm -hmm. All right, Ben says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, Ben. I recently moved to a new parish in Wisconsin and had a couple of questions about lay participation in the Mass. First of all, is this in the Diocese of La Crosse? No, he doesn't, Chris he doesn't regulates say. the liturgy? No, okay. He doesn't say. All right, good. Uh, many people at this parish hold hands or raise their arms during the Our Father. Mm-hmm. They are also invited by the priest to extend their hands when a priest gives a special blessing for birthdays, anniversaries, or before children leave for the children's liturgy of the Word. Are these actions allowed or encouraged or for lay participation in the Mass? Thank you, and keep up the great work. I think we've we've talked about holding hands in our Father once. Right. It'd be worth repeating, but I guess yes. the, the blessing thing is something I'd want to know. What do you think, Chris, about holding hands in our Father? Uh, I don't think, well, I know that the, the books don't tell us to do that. Right. It's one of those things they would say is not foreseen by not foreseen, the right. I mean, yeah. right. If we think about the sacramental principle, all right, so what's going on sort of spiritually, invisibly, internally in the Lord's Prayer? Their petitions for forgiveness. Um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You've prayed this before, right? Uh-huh. Thy kingdom what? come, thy yeah. will be done. Uh, it's not really about um, peace and unity. In fact, that comes later. So we offer each other a sign of peace right. later. But uh, the, the holding hands, it seems an incongruous external sign of the inward reality. Right. The principal sign of communion among the laity is the reception of, of communion, communion, right? And the Our Father's, this kind of prayer before that, that leads you to proper reception of communion. So when I've heard the claim made that it shouldn't be done, that's usually why they say it shouldn't be done. Now, the thing about liturgical legislation, as you taught me, Chris, mm. was that it tells you what to do. It doesn't tell you all the things you can't do, right? So it doesn't say you can't burn the church down. It doesn't say you can't murder the person. But you. should you? 
you probably shouldn't, right? So no. it tells you what to do, not what you can't do. So it's kind of presumed that you don't do the things that are not there that are prescribed to to do, right? It's yeah. prescriptive. Now, nonetheless, the culture kind of swarms in and all these things happen and it becomes kind of normative in a lot of places and to try to undo it might cause more harm than letting it go and seeing if it actually, you know, takes. So the pastoral answer is it's probably not the best thing in the world to go root it out of your church. But the kind of strict liturgical answer is it's really not meant to be done. It's not prescribed. Yeah. Part of the Maybe it's a different response from the pastor. What is he going to do about for the whole church versus me, Chris, what am I going to do or not do when it comes to the Lord's Prayer? I don't need to hold my neighbor's hands or my kid's hands or anything like that. Right. And a lot of people like it, you know, they like to have the sign of unity and it would be great maybe at a prayer rally somewhere or something, but it's not really seen in the liturgy. Now, the other thing about the blessing. holding up your hands for blessing, yeah. also not really foreseen by the rites. Correct, yeah. Chris? Yeah, but it's the same type of sacramental principle is that there's external gestures signify internal realities. And the reason why the books have a priest or deacon or particular, particularly designated minister who's going to give a blessing, either extend his hands or make the sign of the cross is because uh, he is empowered and um, given the authority to do that. But I'm not given that power nor that authority by the church to bless your kid, Jesse, as she goes out. For How dare you bless my kid? Yeah. Right. Would oh. you allow some stranger to discipline your kid who is misbehaving in church? Like, no, some, you don't have that authority. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but that doesn't mean I can't pray for your kid. It just means that I, I'm not, uh, I don't need to externalize that as if I were an officially designated so, and empowered minister. So, so if you're asked that. to do that, should you res- restrain or mm, I might uh, quietly decline, not make a big mm-hmm. scene, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, the priest as the head of the mystical body is gathering up all of our prayers and petitions and offering them on our behalf. So it's not really necessary. It, it is in a way an externalization of what you hope people would want to have prayer for those people. I, I was actually at a wedding in Long Island many years ago. One of my good friends was there to my left who was Jewish, had never been to a Catholic mass before. And the priest asked everybody to bless the couple and everybody put their arms out straight, you know, like the... Nazi salute. <laughs> he, he leaned over to me. He's like, why is everybody doing the Nazi salute to the couple? I was like, well, Michael, that's not the Nazi salute. <laughs> it's not supposed to be done at all. But you could see how that could be misunderstood uh, pretty easily. So there's all kinds of these unintended consequences and not foreseen by the right probably shouldn't be done. Do what the right says. All right, Ben. I hope that answers your question. It certainly answered mine about the blessings. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or you can tweet not Dennis and you can tweet at liturgyguys. Is that my Twitter handle? Not, not Dennis. Dennis. I'm going to create at one. Not Dennis. I'm going to create one right now. At not, not Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you and God bless. bless. You did not have your hand extended when you said God bless, by the way. No. Just for those God listening. God The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.